0: Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. Hopefully we'll make it through chapter 10 today, but you never know. I did have a long conversation yesterday with a guy who, he actually contacted my sister, and my sister passed him on to me. He is doing a uh, presentation at some historical society about the movie Twelve Mighty Orphans and if you're not familiar with it, we've talked it in here before, the movie presents a uh, very bad caricature of my grandfather. (laughs) He is one of the bad guys in the movie, and I think the guy was a little surprised that I wasn't more mad than he was, because he was really ticked off at the movie for the presentation of three of the adults in the movie, because they're all caricatures. Um, The fourth Main adult in the movie is a totally made up character. So, anyway, it was an interesting conversation. I think he knew more about my family than I knew about my family because he had been digging into it. It was interesting. Last week, we talked about the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and asking what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And ultimately, Jesus told him to sell everything he had and gave, give to the poor. And it says that he walked away because he had great wealth. So then Jesus and the disciples have a discussion about how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven because they do not recognize their dependence upon God. And the disciples said, Well, then how can anybody be saved? And he said, Jesus replied, With man this is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. So I'm really not sure where we ended last week's lesson. Actually, I am. But we're going to quickly go through the end of last week's lesson. Peter began to say, verse 28, to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. So here we have this rich guy refuses to turn his back on his possessions, and Peter, being Peter, jumps into the situation and says, see, we've given up everything for you. Now, just to be perfectly honest, Peter probably didn't have a whole lot to give up, but we won't go there. He's trying to say, see how much better we are than, well, this rich guy. Jesus said, "Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now uh, now and in, in this time, houses brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. It is interesting, he gives this list, if you give up land, mothers, brothers, sisters, etc., etc., you're going to get back mothers, brothers, sisters, and persecution. Did you notice that he adds that on the second list? It is interesting because What Jesus is telling us is that whatever you've given up, whatever you perceive that you've given up for the kingdom of heaven, remember, you're going to get so much more. Now, it is interesting because this verse uses this word a hundredfold. And there are our friends in the prosperity gospel world who believed that if I give a dollar to the minister, God is going to give me $100 back. I actually had a coworker one time. To the best of my knowledge, he wasn't even a believer. And he told me one day that he had given $10 to a TV evangelist and was waiting for his 10 times 100 is $1,000 back. I'm not sure that's the way it works. And just to make sure you understand that, Jesus reminds us by putting persecutions on that list too. The things that we have given up in this world will be insignificant to the rewards that we receive in heaven. And in addition, the things that we give up in this world versus the ability to serve God in this world and the blessing that that is, well, one becomes insignificant. So while Peter wants Jesus to know, hey, we've given up everything, Jesus reminds Peter and us, eh, don't worry about it. I might add, if you sit at home thinking about everything that you've given up for God, there may be something wrong with your calculation. You're obviously focused on the wrong thing. You're focused on the material things of this world instead of the spiritual blessings that God has promised us. And then he ends with this interesting little statement, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Remember that, because that's in today's lesson. So, that was the end of last week's lesson. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, you need to understand the significance of that sentence. The people that were with him understood the significance of that sentence. Let's read the rest of the sentence. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So, here's Jesus walking along, Here are his disciples walking along with him and then there are the rest of the people. You know, right, that there were other followers other than the 12. So here is Jesus walking toward Jerusalem and the people back here are amazed and they are afraid. What are they afraid of? We know you can look in the map in the back of your Bible or whatever, Jesus has been spending his ministry up around the Sea of Galilee. Occasionally he ventures a little bit to the east, maybe a little bit to the west, but that's where he is. He is not in Jerusalem. The religious authorities in Jerusalem send people out to uh, interview him to attack him, to test him. But Jesus has been staying away from the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And in fact, we've had this discussion that when Jesus did a miracle among the Jewish communities, he was very clear to tell the people, don't tell anybody what I did. Now, they all did, but he told them not to. But when Jesus was in the Gentile communities, he would say, sure, tell whoever you want. Jesus is turning in his ministry. Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. Jesus is heading toward a conflict with the Jewish religious authorities. He is heading toward, we know, the cross. That is what is significant about this sentence. He is turning and heading toward Jerusalem. And his disciples are going, huh, this is weird. And the people are going, this is shocking. And they're scared of what's going to happen. Now... Remind ourselves, the disciples are convinced, sort of, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to ride into Jerusalem, and we're going to see that maybe in two weeks, but whenever we get around to it, he's going to ride into Jerusalem. The people are going to proclaim him king. He's going to sit on the Davidic throne. He's going to raise an army. They're going to drive out the Romans. Life is going to be good. Jesus is going to be sitting on a throne. The disciples are going to be sitting around him. And woo-ha, things are going to be great. That's what they're convinced of. But he's been telling them a different story. And he's going to tell it to them again in the next coming verses. Verses. Bad things are going to happen when I get to Jerusalem. That's what he's been telling them. I'm not sure how much they believe him, but that's what he's been telling them. Let's keep going. And taking the 12 aside, taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. This is the third time that Jesus has given them this message. But it's the first time that he is giving it to them while on his way to Jerusalem. While they were wandering around up in the Sea of Galilee area, the people were astounded because the crowds were coming. Everybody loved him. He was working miracles. He was doing great things. And this talk about bad things, nah, now they are on their way to Jerusalem. And he repeats to them, What's going to happen? He, the Son of Man, is going to be handed over to the religious leaders. They are going to arrest him. They are going to condemn him to death. Then he is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Why? Well, we know that under Roman occupation, the Romans allowed the locals, in this case the Jews, certain amount of authority over criminal matters, except they could not execute anyone. So in order for Jesus to be executed, he's going to have to be handed over to the Roman authorities. That's why it's Romans nailing the nails, not Jews. Otherwise, he probably would have been stoned to death. If the Jews had done it, they are going to mock him. They are going to spit on him. They are going to kill him. And in three days, he's going to rise from the dead. And we had this discussion the last time we covered this. Um, My mind thinks they would have understood killing. They would have understood mocking. They would have understood spitting. They would have understood all of that. They have no idea what this three days rising from the dead means. Okay? Just saying. But Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. Continuing on. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, that's one of those stupid questions that children ask. Dad, will you agree to do whatever I ask you to do? No. That's the answer, okay? That's my first answer. Jesus does not even address that question. All he says is, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Okay. We know, Jesus, at some point, I know you speak all this stuff about dying and all that, but at some point, you're going to be sitting on a throne. And one of us wants to sit on the right-hand side of the throne, and the other one wants to sit on the left-hand we want to be your number two and three guys. Can we do that? <coughs> what are they asking? They're asking for a place of importance. They want to be recognized as leaders in whatever it is that's coming before us. They want to be Top dog. You know, right, that a king sits there and the king has his top advisor and his number two advisor sitting next to him. Or he has his queen, top advisor, and the number one advisor sitting. I mean, that's how it works. Proximity to power represents power. I might add. You actually see this in the floor plan of the White House today. The closer you are to the president, the more power you have. Okay? That's what they know. That's what they want. Now, just as an aside, the Matthew version of this tells us that they brought their mother with them. Okay? to kind of reinforce this story. I think Mark is being a little bit kind to them. We won't mention the mother part. I mean, hey, what mother doesn't want their sons to be in positions of power and authority? (sighs) I can just imagine Jesus sighing. Jesus said to them, "'You do not know what you're asking,' Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Okay, Jesus, what cup were you drinking? They don't ask that question. They had seen people been baptized. I can do that. Jesus was baptized. I can do that. I can go into the Jordan River and be dunked. If you, I mean, it doesn't matter. I don't care whether you're dunking or sprinkling, whatever it is. I can handle that. So they respond. And they said to him, we are able. We can do this. Whatever cup you're drinking, we'll drink it with you. They don't have a clue of what's coming. And Jesus said to them, once again, I just picture Jesus sitting here with this long sigh going, you don't know what you're doing, do you? And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Baptized. Biblically, we see the imagery of the cup uh, in a couple of different ways. In fact, two very extreme ways. The cup can be full of blessing and good things, or the cup can be a source of trouble and bad things. And Jesus is sitting there thinking, I am going to die I am going to die, and that's the cup that I have to drink. And he turns to them and says, yeah, you're going to drink it too. We know from the book of Acts, actually, that James is going to be killed for the faith. We know that. He is, I think, the first of the apostles that is actually martyred for the faith. We're told in Acts that Herod gets ticked off, another Herod, and has him executed. Okay? John is going to be the last apostle alive. He is going to die in exile on the island of Patmos after he writes what? The book of Revelation. According to church tradition, and I... Use that because it's not in the book of Acts. It's not in the Bible itself. According to church tradition, John is considered a martyr because he suffered what should have killed him but didn't. Why? Because God still had something in mind for him. God still needed him to write the book of Revelation. Either way, they are going to be persecuted for their faith for their following of Jesus. They are going to drink the cup. But, but to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, just as an aside, who is sitting on Jesus's left side in the biblical imagery Come on, God. Why? Because Jesus is sitting on God the Father's right hand interceding today for you and me. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. So we know who's on Jesus' left side. Who's on his right side? I don't know. You know, I would love somebody to say, tell me who it's prepared for. But all Jesus is saying God's got something, and that's his problem. That's his authority. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So, there's ten other disciples. They hear that James and John had been making this power play, trying to get in good with Jesus. They brought their mother along, and they're ticked off. Why are they ticked off? They're ticked off because James and John think they're better than they are, or they're ticked off because they didn't think of it first, or they're ticked off because they did think of it, they just didn't do anything about it. Either way, they're upset at James and John for trying to get a position of power and authority in whatever coming kingdom there was going to be. And Jesus called to them and said to them, Hmm, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Now, I think Jesus is trying to just really emphasize his point when he says, You know how the Gentiles operate? Because the reality is the Jews operated the same way. But he was being nice. He wanted to emphasize that's how those people operate. How do those people operate? It? Operate Well, they lord it over each other. They are continually working to see who is above whom And when you get above somebody, you demonstrate that by showing authority over them. You command them to do things. That is the nature of authority. That is the nature of a hierarchy. That is the desire for power and influence over the lives of other people. That's the world we live in. Any of you question that? You know, you can go read a leadership book about how you're supposed to do it, or you can read a book about how it really happens and people get in positions of authority and they want to dominate over other people. Jesus tells his disciples, that's how the Gentiles do it. But what does he tell them? But it shall not be among you. He's not saying it shouldn't. He's saying it will, it shall not be among you. It is interesting. I spent my life writing government documents, requirements documents, documents saying what we are going to do to fulfill a particular contract. Okay? What's the difference between shall and will? Shall is contractually obligated. You are going to do it. Will is a hope, a desire. If in my spare time I have something to do, I will do this. Shall means you shall. And Jesus says, you shall not do this. Why do we keep doing it? Because it's innate in our fallen sinful nature to want to exert power and authority over other people. Let's keep reading. But it shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's look at that last verse first. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Come on, it just said it. You just have to read it. To serve and to be a ransom. Jesus is going to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins in order to buy us back, to ransom us from the power of sin. That's why he came. And he came To serve us. Huh. If you want to be in the kingdom, if you want to be great, if you want to be important, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. At this point, we get to discuss what it means to be a servant. And I know what you're thinking. I'm okay with being a servant. You know, I'll serve. I'll do things for other people. Really? Probably. Maybe. Sometime. On occasion. Richard Foster, in his book on spiritual disciplines, talks about serving, and he comments on the fact that We are perfectly willing to serve as long as we're in control. Okay? I will go to you and I'll say, I'm gonna do this for you, but I have chosen to do this, and I'm doing it because I have chosen to do it. And as long as everybody knows I'm in charge and I'm a then I'm being a servant. By definition, a servant works at the service of somebody else. And in case you don't quite get the point, let's read this a little bit more carefully. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. That word slave and that word servant are not the same word. The word servant, the word translated servant, Uh, is actually where we get the word deacon. The deacon serves the body of Christ. Okay? The deacon serves the needs of you and me. The slave means they have no say in the matter. They are doing it. They are compelled. They are giving themselves up. The scripture sometimes translates that word bond-servant. You've heard the analogy, the idea, right? I am uh, an indentured servant. You know what that is, right? I've sold myself to somebody for a period of time to pay off some debt, to do something. We had them in the colonies. People would uh, come over to the the, the colonies... And they had no money to pay for their transport, so they were an indentured servant for a period of time. Okay? Well, at the end of that period of time, in the ancient world, they could decide, I've got a good master, he's taking care of me, I want to stay. And they could choose to become a bond servant. Now, I might add, just so we make sure we make ourselves aware of this, the Bible is pretty clear. You don't want to be a true slave. You don't want to be the property of somebody else. But what we're talking about here is serving the needs of somebody else. Have I made you hate the word yet? Okay, Jesus is telling his disciples, if you, want, if you want to be great, serve each other. Look out for the needs of the other and not the needs of yourself. Those people, the Gentile rulers... They want a position of power so they can put their thumb on top of somebody else. You shall not do that. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want to be the greatest, you must be a slave to others. Now, here's where this gets complicated, at least in my mind. Jesus came for two purposes. What were those two purposes? To be a servant to all and to be a ransom. Jesus served those around him. Any question about that? They were hungry. He fed them. They were sick. He healed them. They were blind. He gave them their eyesight. He served them. But he always knew what his mission was. That's why he turned and he's heading toward Jerusalem. If it was just a matter of doing service, he could have stayed up there in the Sea of Galilee for the rest of his life. But he knew what God had called him to do. So here is the dilemma of servanthood. Sometimes being a servant doesn't mean doing what people want you to do. But it's doing what they need, whether they know it or not. You have actually seen this. You've had children, and you as a parent serve your children. But you know that doesn't mean giving them everything they want. Because if you do that, you're not serving them. You're messing up their life. Sometimes being the servant to your children means telling your children no. So Jesus is serving the disciples and when he tells them he's going to Jerusalem to die and Peter says, heck no, you're not doing that, Jesus turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. Now, I say that to demonstrate that sometimes servanthood is complicated. But I want to flip that on its side, though, to encourage you that most of the time it's not that complicated. Most of the time, servanthood is not a matter of complication. It's a matter of a lack of will on our part. You see, if you come to me and ask me, how do I solve poverty in the country? First off, I don't know. But secondly, we start coming up with very complicated solutions and trying to figure it out. That's hard. But when you see a neighbor who hasn't had lunch, it's not that complicated. Don't try to solve the big problem. Serve the person who has the need. Do you see the difference? Sometimes I want to make it complicated and I want to solve the world's problems. We have this running joke at my house. It's not a joke, it's a curse. I lay in bed at night trying to solve all the world's problems. Guess what? I've never solved a one of them. But when you have a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, an enemy, anybody that has an immediate need, the response of the servant is sir. But I want to think about it for a while. No, don't do that. But if I feed them dinner, they might get fat. Don't worry about that. <laughs> if I serve them dinner, they might get dependent upon me. Well, maybe they are, but let's not worry about that. We need to learn to serve, we need to learn to see a need. And meet that need. First off, you have to be aware of what's going on around you. And secondly, you need to respond to it. That's the easy part. That's the elementary school level. The rest of it does get complicated. I admit it. That's what makes parenting complicated. You know, knowing when to say no. But most of the time, when God has put somebody in your path with a need, it's not that complicated. All it is, is a matter of our will to be the servant to those around us. We have talked a couple of times about times where Jesus wanted to get away from the crowd. He wanted to get away. He had been Preaching, he had been working miracles. He was tired. Remember, Jesus was a human being. He was tired, but he couldn't get away. And he turned and continued to minister to those in front of him. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples. In our society, there is this desire to somehow move up the pecking order, to somehow work our way up, to be in control, to be in authority, to be the guy. And Jesus tells us, actually, he's telling the 12, well, the 11 people who are going to be the leaders of the early church, don't be like that. Don't be the one looking to see how you can put other people under your thumb. Don't be the person looking for the power just to have power. Be the one who's willing to be the servant of all. That's what he's telling us to do. It's not that complicated. Just do it. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus set the example for us. Two missions, one of which we are never called to do. You are not going to be the ransom for all humanity You are never going to die on a cross to pay the sins for all of humanity. That's not the one you're supposed to imitate. The one you're supposed to imitate is the desire to serve rather than the desire to be served. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Jesus and his service toward us. I pray, Lord, that we too would learn to be servants. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.